You're listening to Coding Blocks, episode 71. Subscribe to us and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, and more using your favorite podcast app. Visit us at codingblocks.net where you can find show notes, examples, discussion, and more. Send your feedback, questions, and rants to comments at codingblocks.net. Follow us on Twitter at codingblocks or head to www.codingblocks.net and find all our social links there at the top of the page. With that, I'm Alan Underwood. I'm Joe Zach. And I'm Michael Outlaw. All right. So last time we talked about clean ar- architecture, we talked about how to kind of apply the solid principles at an architectural level in, in order to organize our code a little bit better. So uh, this time we're kind of think, uh, moving things up a level, talking about components and uh, the three cohesion principles. Sweet. And Sorry, I forgot that I put that section there. Uh, Sorry, all listeners. <laughs> all good. So we're going to get into, you know, something that we love is you know, thanking everybody for the reviews that you guys send in. So I've got iTunes this time and apparently I need to increase my font. I have certain <laughs> old <Egan>. man eyes. Apparently <laughs> yeah. that's what you have. I, I think I actually shrank it down so that I could see stuff. All right. So here we go. Sir knee games, uh, Killane 99, the rational reptilian ADN D Y F C Aaron Milliken. Lean Webstart, Swap Futures, Fat64, Antoine New York, and Ace4410. And so thank you for all of you guys that did that. I do have a random thought here. And and this came from uh, ADNDYFC. So he gave us a one-star review. And, and I'm not calling him out for that. But his reason was is because he heard us bashing on PHP. Mm. Right. And I do want to point out, like, I mean, I think we take it for granted because we're 70 episodes in and we sort of, I I think we kind of expect everybody to sort of get our humor at this point and kind of get where we're coming from. Because let's be honest, right? Like anything you can do, you can do in any language you want to do. Right. So I hope that nobody out there actually feels like we're always bashing on, on their particular language. We have lots of people in our Slack channel that do PHP. We have lots of people that do all kinds of random languages. Right. So you know, I, I hate it that, that that was his introduction to us because I could see why that would, you know, potentially put somebody off, especially when that's how you bring home your bread, right? Yeah. And and specifically, the thing that caught him off was actually a reference to a previous episode where we had talked about a Reddit uh, uh, post in the programming humor Yep, where that was just one of all the languages that was, you know, quote picked on right so i hate that i mean hopefully if you're listening you know you kind of see that we're sort of fun loving guys and we joke about this stuff we even self-deprecate our own stuff so you know whatever um i just wanted to say that i mean hopefully everybody out there kind of knows that that you know we're doing this so that everybody could get better but we do like to laugh and we're going to continue to laugh about certain things so Anyways, especially PHP. <laughs> especially PHP. <laughs> I made I made a lot of money using PHP. It's great for the internet, and Libby Limes is one of my heroes. So yeah, um, I'm yeah. just kidding. Yeah, totally. So anyway, that I just want to drop that random thought. All right, moving on. <laughs> yep. And so from Stitcher, we have the Mad Viking God, Aaron M, Twin Bits, Comet, and Christopher Olson. Yeah, and big thanks to uh, Godprogman on Podchaser. And if you're not familiar with Godprogman, he is one of the hosts of the Waffling Tailors podcast, which is the only gaming podcast I know of that's got a perfect five-star record on iTunes. So uh, good job, Jamie. 
Very nice. I mean, Galprog man. Yeah. <laughs> Whoever you are. Yeah. I just doxed you. Sorry. Yeah. And, and we've got lots of people in here that left reviews that are on our Slack channel. So, you know, thank you to all you guys that, that took the time to do this and gals. Um, really awesome people out there. So thank you. Yeah, Arlene, uh, Arlene wrote a really nice review for us uh, over on Podchaser, which uh, might have helped in us getting mentioned uh, earlier today on a, on a great post. They put us in the top five for tech podcasts. Thank you very much. Yep. Right behind Reply All. I mean, seriously. Yeah. yeah. Which is my favorite show. Yeah, so. mine too. I, I enjoy it. Besides ours, of course. Yeah, of course. Of course. Yes. <laughs> Man, that's crazy. Well, <laughs> hey, can I ask you a question, Joe? Yep. Does this cup make my face look big? <laughs> <laughs> that cup is so giant. <laughs> so giant. Mike. It's so beautiful. We got we did, we did a swag trade with MS Dev Show, and so I've got a beautiful, uh, beautiful cup. Uh, we've, we've all got beautiful cups and hats. Um, I cleaned my office, so I can't find it anymore, but I've got a hat, too. It's a really nice trucker hat. So if you're interested in coding blocks, swag-like hats and mugs, you should let us know because we're working on it. Yes, we are, definitely. Oh, and by the way... I don't this, think it's big enough, though. Hey, this is for my friend Ryan <laughs> Williams. We've got a big matchup tomorrow night between the Saints and tomorrow night between the Falcons and the Saints. So this is for you, man. And hopefully I'm not eating these words come Sunday or Friday or whenever this game is over. Anyways. Or better yet, whenever this episode gets released. Right, exactly. Yeah. I've got my hat on now. There it is. Nice. All right. So we're going to get into the show. But first, I want to tell you something that we're really excited about. Uh, did a little bit of math this year. And, you know, we, we try to do a lot of giveaways. We try to um, come up with really cool stuff to give you guys. And we do a lot of this on the mailing list just because it's easier to kind of manage for us. Um, we've done a, a few things on Twitter and a few things um, and uh, like Slack and a couple other different ways. But uh, the majority of our contest giveaways have been on the mailing list. And I did a little bit of math. I added this stuff up and I figured out what all we gave away this year. So check this out. This year we gave away $550 in Amazon gift cards, 27 JetBrains licenses, 21 books. That's clean code, imposter syndrome, domain driven design, clean architecture. Those are actually in the comment sections for the most part. Uh, imposter syndrome was in the mailing list. Um, two tickets to SwanzaCon, uh, awesome. Uh, Convention out in Wales. Three React in Motion courses from our, our buddy Zach Brady. Three Post Sharp Ultimate licenses. And we also sent out a lot of stickers and mugs and a couple other things, some shirts. But um, I, I totaled this up and we are at almost $11,000 worth of giveaways. Woohoo. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. That, I mean, so, that's awesome. Yeah. I mean, being like a listener show, it's like, it's almost, it's like if you average it out, it's like, 10 bucks a person. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Well, if you consider how many episodes we release in a year, that's like... That's pretty good. You know, yeah, it's like $1,000 $1, an episode. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty good. So we're working for you. Yeah. So if you appreciate that work, uh, well, you know, we love those reviews, but we also just set up a page at codingblocks.net slash resources. And we'll, we'll have a link there on the website too. You can find it up at the top. But codingblocks.net slash resources in there. We've got links to like a different affiliate programs we've got set up. So if you're thinking about signing up for a plural site or you've got some ginormous purchase uh, that you want to to do on Amazon and uh, consider going through us to do it, it'll you know leave us a small percentage. It won't cost you anything extra, but it helps support the show. 
I'm probably violating some terms of service, but we try to be upfront <laughs> with you guys about everything. So yep. don't tell Amazon be our little secret. Yep. But we definitely give back and, and we love it because we know that all our community also gives back, right? Like our Slack community is amazing. The people leave comments on all our episodes. It's killer stuff. So, you know, the, I guess this is the time of the year to say thank you to everybody for all the great stuff that you've done. And, you know, it's awesome to be able to give back. It really is. All right, so we're going to hop into the meat here. Let's do it. Ew. <laughs> all right. We've got an interesting visual there. It's all this food talk. But I guess I'm hungry when I'm podcasting. Last time was cheese dust and now. Anyway, <laughs> getting a little meta. Uh, so um, we want to talk about comp components tonight. And uh, let's first talk a little bit about what components are. And um, the book defines, uh, we're talking about clean architecture again, the book defines components as the smallest entity that can be deployed. So it's not a line of code, it's not a class, uh, it could be an EXE, it could be a DLL, a JAR, a GEM, something like that, maybe some compiled JavaScript code, but it's one deployable unit. And the book starts out with an interesting history of components, we're not going to go too deep into it here. Um, but it, it kind of uh, builds up to the way we kind of got to where we were, the way things are today and why it kind of makes sense and why things are so awesome now. But basically, we started out with talking about programs that used to load common functionality into known memory locations. That way, programs could like reuse the same functions and whatnot without having to um, compile those things uh, all together. And that just kind of saved time. And this eventually led to shared libraries between different program or programs and relocatable uh, binaries that could be loaded into different memory locations. And um, we got uh, external references eventually, which let you reference things by names rather than, you know, memory location 2000, which was really nice. And at the same time, hardware was getting better and better. So we were able to do more and more uh, Cody type stuff. And that brings us to linking loaders. And unless you're working in a language like C, C++. Yeah, I don't know if anyone even really talks about these anymore. I I really, I mean, it's been a while since I've been in that world, so I don't know. I mean, I remember one yep. of the things that he said in the book was even this wasn't great at the time because hardware was so slow, right? It was loading things mm -hmm. up off tapes. And so even trying to get a program to load could take like an hour, depending on how complex the program was. Yep. And it's kind of back in the day too when like everyone had their like little tool belt of things. Like you might have like a little date utils kind of collection of functions that you would bring with you from project to project to make your life easier. And that kind of thing, uh, you know, went away uh, over time and went over way, uh, went over uh, because these smart linking loaders let us divide programs up into separately compilable and loadable segments. And then we dynamically load them as needed. So when we talk about DLLs, that's kind of a popular one. Um, a dynamically uh, linked library is a mm -hmm. yep. library. Yep, dynamic linked library. Yep. Okay, so if you've got a program, you know maybe you've got an if statement in there, and you know if one thing, then it'll go out to this library. Otherwise, it may go out to another one. Those libraries aren't uh, loaded in memory until you actually use them. And even then, I think it's really smart about like what it um, grabs out of those libraries in order to use. So um, things have gotten a lot better. And if you've ever worked on a really large project that took a long time to build, then you're very familiar with the notion of like building the project you're in because a full rebuild could take an obscenely long time. 
So this isn't anything new. And if you work in compiled language, you've probably seen this text go flying by and you've seen, the, you know, talking about linking, whatever. And this used to be a really slow process. But all of this is just kind of leading up to the point that things have gotten a lot better and things have also gotten a lot more complicated because we didn't actually, you know, we don't use that extra time at the end of the day now to play foosball, right? We just have, you know, bigger and more uh, requirements. So, like, back in the day, you know, you would work on, say, an authentication page or something. You would start by typing HTML and then, you know, maybe doc type if you're, uh, you know, doing things the right way. Then you get into the head and you know, all that stuff's gone. Like, you're, you're probably going to bring in a couple packages, but then you're going to spend the rest of the day wrestling with trying to get, like, your, you know, CSS library to look right with your authentication package to work right with your, um, you know, ORM, whatever. So the, the work just changes and ultimately the end result is going to look a lot nicer and work a lot better than it used to when you started out by mistyping that doc type. But we just have bigger expectations. Yeah, so made, why does this... Oops, sorry, go ahead. There was a something, there was a quote in here though that was kind of like going along your, your statement about like uh, the programs also got bigger and more complex. Uh, there was a quote in here that it reminded me of something I've always heard referred to as the fishbowl principle um, that could apply to any, to a lot of different scenarios. But, um, you know, basically the fishbowl principle is the fish is going to grow to the size of his bowl. Right. And, and the spin on it that he had in here was that, that the, uh, the programs grew to fill the available com um, compile and link time. So, you know, going back to your point about things got bigger and more complex, you know, as our, as our hardware got faster and better, we just filled that time up. You're like, why does it, you ever wonder like, why does it still take X amount of time to compile this? Right. Mm -hmm. Whatever that might be. Like, you know, if you, if you think back to like, uh, recompiling the Linux kernel and you're like, oh man, I can re I can compile Linux kernel in this amount of time. You're like, why does it still take that amount of time? And that's why yep. we just, just keep scrolling. We just keep adding on. That's right. Yeah. Ugh. But uh, linking loaders are now the norm. Um, you know, even things like JavaScript, you bring in modules and whatnot dynamically and bundle them up dynamically and do all sorts of crazy stuff. And because of that, plugin architectures are common. In this case, I don't think plugin necessarily means like, you know, an Eclipse or uh, in the Windows world, like MEF, you know, these places where they kind of like you start up an application and it goes out looking for libraries to load and tell what to do. I think they're talking about more like literally in the sense that like you've got a bunch of modules that you're kind of plugging in and making work together. So rather than you doing all the typing, you're leveraging like all this work that's already done. And that's just kind of the world we live in now. We are in the age of software reuse. And so we need to figure out how to work effectively in that world and take advantage of it. Do you, do you think that a big part of that uh, software re age of software reuse has been the uh, proliferation of open source projects and libraries? Yeah, totally. I mean, I used to always hear about Perl because of CPAN. Like mm -hmm. CPAN was the one that I kind of had first always heard about being amazing. And then next thing you know, everyone's got package managers springing up. Yep. Uh, I can't imagine working in .NET without NuGet now. It just seems crazy. Yeah, I agree. I mean, and you look at everything now. They've all got multiple package managers, right? You got NPM for Node. You've got, I mean, geez, everything now. And what did it, it really kind of started with uh, what SourceForge back in the day, probably. 
or maybe not, or was that more just downloadable stuff? But I mean, GitHub's definitely made it ridiculous now to where it's just, it's so easy and so many people do it. But yeah, I run a discourse site now and you can add plugins by pasting in the Git uh, URL and it'll go and check it out and compile. It's just crazy. Yeah, that's cool. So yeah, I mean, this is where we start getting into the three principles that he talks about in, in this particular section and they're the component principles. So the first one is REP. It's the reuse or release equivalence principle. And it doesn't sound like much <laughs> on the surface. Um, but basically what they're saying is the releases of shareable software components or modules must produce the proper notifications and release documentation. That was like the one key takeaway for me in this. And I mean, we'll, we'll cover more details, but basically in order for people to be able to trust and use your components, they need to know what's in them and, and what's going to break as, as new changes come out. Except for the documentation part. Yeah, that's the part that bugged me because I'm also like, well, wait a minute. In the other Uncle Bob book we read, didn't we talk about just have like self-documenting code and well, difference, difference though. This is more like release notes, right? Like because we're talking about released components. Maybe. So I think at this point, it's almost like if you go to get a new uh, a new NuGet package like Log for Net or whatever, right? If you're getting that thing and they're jumping from two point four dot two to two point four dot three. Right. Why do you need that? Yeah. Well, I guess I guess that's kind of where I was thinking about. I was like, how are we defining release documentation as this? Because I don't want to spend my time. Don't please don't ask me to write a book about like yeah. what I just put in. Yeah, I think it's more along the lines of if you've got a ticketing system or something, right? And and there are various different things that were fixed in that particular release version. Hey, what's the bulleted list of of the items that were changed right. for this? I think that's really what we're talking about here. You imagine if you've got like kind of you know off the shelf software or software that you sell to a company and you go and you say, okay, we want to upgrade you to the latest versions. They're like, okay, well, why? And you're like, well, you know, Tom over there updated the NuGet packages and um, Janet, uh, she did some cool stuff with CSS. And uh, what else do we do? You know, like no one wants to hear that, right? That's never happened. So it's it's both got professional reasons uh, for for checking that stuff and people using your code. uh, But it's also... um, really important for uh, versioning tools like you know to know if you can say for example upgrade your packages you know to know whether like you know a lot of times you see in package configurations now you'll see like um greater than less than type sign so you'll see like yeah um go ahead and just grab any uh, log for net version that's you know in the 2.2 ish range and so it doesn't care if it's 2.2.141 or you know 163 uh, both of those should be compatible so might as well grab the latest in that set So, it just opens up automation. So yeah, and that's really part of it too. You've so one of the things that they talk about here is the classes, the modules within the release should be releasable together. And I know that sounds obvious, but there's many times that you've seen to where you know you go and you get the latest of something and it's not compatible with the other thing that was there, right? And so like upgrading these things, it really needs to be a cohesive thing. It needs to be something that you don't really have to think about. It can be automated and it, and it should work together. Um, <laughs> somebody put in here, thou shalt have release numbers. <laughs> I'm assuming that's you, Joe. Yep. <laughs> yeah. I was trying to do something funny with like the three component commandments or something, but I don't know. <laughs> 
principles was in every every one of these. Every one of these acronyms that we're going over right now, there's three of them, but everyone ends in P. Hey, maybe there were four. No, there are three here. No, oh, the other one was the the triangle. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe this is worth talking about, just the versioning thing, because we've we've all kind of gone through different iterations oh. of things, right? Um, like semantic versioning is the one that I think we sort of all agree on here. <laughs> yeah. No? Simver. It's either that or dates. Those are like the kind of two popular ones. Uh, and I don't like the date thing. I don't it just, It's not really meaningful, I, I think, to the end user. Yeah, I tried it at one point. It didn't work out well. <laughs> yeah, and um, there's really good reasons for it. Our buddy John uh, knows them very well. <laughs> like, It's kind of like if you're trying to do like semantic versioning for determining whether things are compatible, then you, you want to go with the numbers. The dates are meaningless there. Right. But if you are trying to communicate it, I, you know, I guess it, this is the most recent version or how old it is. And maybe the dates make sense. But I mean, to me, like, I don't want to see like Firefox, November, 2017, you know, it just doesn't, I think it depends on who, who, who or what is the end user of that, uh, version is the point. If it's going to be machines, then you want it to be, um, uh, you know, semantic versioning. Uh, if it's going to be human readable, then to your point, then maybe they want to be able to have some kind of relationship about like, okay, I see this version and I can assume that this is X amount old. But that also kind of means like the only where places where I've seen where that kind of works is if it's always rolling forward. Right. Right. Like if it's, if it's, if there's ever the possibility that you're going to like want to use something from the past, then it's like, why, why would that? Why was why would you use that version then? That seems weird. Mm-hmm. It, it almost seems like there should be the product version that's like the human readable version versus the, right. the actual release version. There's which, the marketing version, yes. and then there's the the technical version. And for those who aren't familiar with with Simverge, I, I think it's worth at least talking about it. Like the first digit is your major release number, right? Your second digit is a what is that? That's a minor update, but it could have backward breaking compatibility with the previous one. So like 1.0 is your first release, right? 1.1 is, okay, this is an iteration on version one, but it has some breaking changes from 1.0. If you have 1.0.1 though, that's like usually bug fixes and improvements to the overall software that's not backward changing, breaking. And then correct me if I'm wrong, I think the fourth digit, so 1.0.1.0, you know, one, two, three, four, that should be dictated by a build server somewhere, right? Yes. Like that's not supposed to be anything that any human did unless you were just going to put dot one, dot two, dot three, whatever. So I pulled up uh simver.org mm-hmm. and, but I think I wasn't sure the way you said the second one, the first, they say the first one is the major, it's incompatible API changes. So anytime yep. that one changes, it's incompatible. The second one is the minor Oh, it is backwards and compatible. That one is backwards compatible. That's okay. what I thought. You said it wasn't, right? It wasn't. Yeah, okay. I was wrong. Yeah. Okay. And then the but and then there's the patch, which is the third one, which is uh also backwards compatible bug fixes. Okay, so the third one's bug fixes, the second one's additional functionality, but still backwards compatible. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think that's worth knowing about because it's really important when you're talking about um versions that are compatible with other with other modules, seeing as how we're talking about all this stuff. If you use something like semantic versioning, it's very easy to, easy to reason about just looking at the numbers, assuming that people aren't you know lying and fudging about their numbers. But if they're truly 
using semantic versioning properly, then you know that it should work with your software. Right? So, so if we had to put other words to those like dot, dot, dots, then you could say it's uh, major release dot new feature dot bug fix dot build number. Yep. And it should be an automated build number. Yeah. Yep. So that's uh, for anybody who isn't familiar with that. Hopefully that'll help out. And we'll have a link to simver.org on here because I think it's really helpful to see this stuff and see the breakdown. So. All right. Um, tangent one, but I think it was a useful one. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, all right. So what do we got here? Oh, uh, so releases should have a theme. That's just something I, that I saw mentioned in the book that I just thought was kind of cool. And it kind of goes back to like the marketing speak. Um, but just the idea of not having like a, a just a random collection of stuff. So if you've got some sort of release or something um, and you're writing your, you know, I would say show notes, your, uh, your release notes, then you want to kind of organize those a little bit. Like no one wants to see a bunch of like, you know, little tiny kind of meaningless changes. We want to know what the, the overall... Um, senses like are these performance enhancements are these security fixes are these you know new features like just make it easy give it um you know make it something that's meaningful to humans in addition to computers yep and that pretty much wraps this one up right like the uh the rep version now one thing he did say on this one was if i remember correctly is he said, this one isn't all that, it's more of an idea, right? This one's more of, you know, you should release these things together that, that, you know, belong together. And he said, the problem is it's easy to say, Hey, this is what it should be. But you know, that doesn't mean that you can enforce it in any particular meaningful way. But he said that the next two principles we get into help drive that a little bit better. Mm-hmm. So does anyone else hate that there's two R's before that EP, but then every time it's referenced there on out, it's the REP. Yes. Yeah. It kind of bugged me. Yeah. And I like, I, I don't even like the reuse in there. I wish it was just the release equivalence principle. Cause I don't know. There's something about the word release that like helps me remember. And I definitely got scrambled when I kept seeing these acronyms showing up. Yeah. yeah. Go ahead. I was just going to say the reuse. I mean, that that's almost unnecessary because the whole point is to build components that other people use, right? Like, so it, I think the the release one is really again to to your point. It's what drives it home in my mind. And reuse is part of one of the other principles. Yeah, but so this was this also started though with like the very first uh, quote that he has in here. Like it, it kind of built off of that. The granule of reuse is the granule of release. Okay. Right. So, yeah, trying to figure out how a better way to another way to say that, though, was that like. uh, Yeah, I can't. (laughs) If you're going to be able to reuse it, if you can reuse it independently, then you can release it independently. Maybe. Yeah, I mean, that's true. I don't know if that one belonged to this one so much, but yeah, I don't know. Let's cover the next few. I thought it did, though, because it was did saying it? that, like, um, if it all belonged together and you can release it, then maybe maybe I'm wrong. That yeah. wasn't this one? I don't know. Uh, uh, they all kind of bleed together me a little bit, <laughs> but I, I'm trying to keep a like a firm grasp on them because uh, there's some interesting stuff in the book that comes later. And, and these three principles are definitely mentioned quite a bit by acronym 
Yeah. So if you could just remember release equivalence principle, we'll make an effort to say the full the full principle name as we go along here because it gets really confusing. At least I, I think it gets confusing. It did. It did when it started referencing them. I, I actually had to start looking back at my notes to see, to yep, see what same. it was. So, yeah. The next one we have up is the CCP, the common closure principle. And Joe, you want to oh, kick no, us off? Or Mike, you want to kick us off with this one? Uh, Not really. Okay. I like this one. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> No, I really, I think I, I think I liked the last one if we're skipping ahead better, but no, we're not skipping not. ahead. I don't know what you're No, we're do. not. So this was the common closure principle, uh, where it was components should consist of classes that change for the same reason and at the same time. So this was similar to the, to SRP, mm-hmm. to the single, uh, responsibility principle, um, and that, uh, how I'm trying to remember how this, how the single responsibility it was some that, uh, the class should change for one only reason one reason. Yep. You know, so, so you want your component to only have one reason to change as well. And that if you're going to define a well, if you're going to create a well-defined component, uh, as soon as you find that there's a second reason for that thing to change, then it should be in a second component. Yep. And and to add on to that, they say classes that change for different reasons, which is what you said, or at different times should be broken out into oh, yeah. separate components, right? So, yeah. And this is the SRP, the single responsibility principle that came from solid, right? Which we've covered and talked about a few times. A couple of times. Yep. So Yeah, it keeps coming up. Um, you know, like one, uh, one example here, I really, I think this might be my favorite principle, but like if you've got like, say some, uh, some. I don't know, some email code that's kind of in like a core part of your, your library. Then anytime you add support for say a different kind of email server, or maybe sending through, you know, one of these cloudy kind of email services or something, you're going to be changing that code, but that's not really relevant to the rest of your code. That's usually in like a core type library, right? That's normally your business logic. And so now you've got this like really functional area of code that's bundled with this other code. And now, Whenever anyone makes a change to business logic, they're also deploying and rebuilding the email stuff and, and vice versa. And so what I really liked about this is that a lot of times, um, a lot like pretty much everywhere I've always worked has always been the question of like, well, should this stuff be its own project or should this be part of a bigger project? The idea is that a bigger project is kind of easier to, to manage in some ways because it's just less stuff. Um but I, I think this is a pretty compelling argument and a pretty good way to kind of help you decide on when to break things up into separate projects or separate packages. You know, it's funny you mentioned that because we've actually tried doing this to where you break things out into separate pro- projects and create like NuGet packages and all that. And it's funny because I think where that falls flat is if you don't have a good build pipeline in place to manage a lot of that stuff for you, then people are just very against having to deal with that kind of stuff. Right. Yeah. Um, and we'll be talking later in, in the next chapter or next episode more in depth about some of that stuff. But I do think it's important to, to think about breaking those things out because what you said is probably the most important part. You build your core logic and you're also now getting something else that's coming along for the ride that really, you know, you have no idea if it has any other impact on it, right? Um, 
And but what's more important though, reusability or maintainability? For most applications, maintainability, right? And this is, yeah. we had a conversation the other day and this is what's funny. Uh, and I don't even know if it really comes into play here, but we've talked about how you split up teams and, and components and and how how different people work in things, right? Like if everybody's working an entire app all at once, you kind of step on each other's toes, right? And and I said, well, if you if you draw the lines and you and you say that you know you know Joe, you're going to work over here in the accounting section, Mike, you're going to work over here in customer service, Alan, I'm going to work over here on the on the front end, like we're all probably going to create code that's going to duplicate each other. But this is almost saying right here, this one line is saying that, you know, the ability to maintain that code is more important than the ability to reuse some of that code. Right. So. I mean, you can look at it like this, look at it, look at it, take it from this point of view. Let's say that all three of us are working in some code base and we all have our own separate areas and coincidentally we all create like let's say it's something simple a, a string extension that all does the same thing yeah okay fine so now there's duplicate code and if we find a bug in one of them then we got to find it and we got to fix it in the others i'm not going to say that that's not bad but from the maintainability point of view if i needed to change my specific version to be maybe a little different than yours i'm not going to impact you and i don't have to worry about Oh, well, I got to put in this special switch statement depending on, you know, with a default parameter and, you know, go through all this, uh, you know, logic to see like, okay, well, which particular case are we talking about here? Like, I don't have to worry about that, right? So from the maintainability point of view, it allows each of us to maintain our, our stuff independently. And if over time we find that duplicate code and we determine like, okay, this is really bad we should consolidate this stuff. We can always refactor that into one thing, but it shouldn't be from the start. Like, Oh, we can't have this duplicated code. We gotta, we gotta reduce all duplicated code down to just the single instance. Right. Yep. And like that, I feel like is an impossible ask. Yeah. And that gets into it again in the next section. That's almost, that's almost verbatim. Um, oh, did I say something? No, no. I mean, in in our next episode that we're going to talk about, it, it, he he kind of goes down that is software is an evolving thing, right? Like it's not mm. static, right? You're never going to know exactly what you're writing up front because you can't, right? There was actually actually no in something in this section, and uh, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit of what I wrote down here in the notes, but um, because keep in mind this this is the you know clean architecture book. So of course he's coming from the architect point of view, which is kind of similar to what you just said, that a good architect finds a position in the tension triangle that meets the current concerns of the development team, but is also aware that those concerns will change over time. Yep. Right. Yep. And I know I'm skipping ahead a little bit. You're like tension triangle. What are you talking about? We'll get to that. Yes. Um, so I gotta say, uh, I'm a little bit more, uh, a fan of dry up front because I feel like a lot of times we don't go back and, and refactor things once there's two and the thing is like two becomes three sometimes and then becomes four. And then it gets to be a problem when you say like, okay, we need to systematically change this stuff. So I kind of feel like it's easier to split it off when you start needing the special case, you know, later than it is to kind of go back and consolidate stuff. Well, I wasn't, I wasn't trying to be like pro duplicate duplication, by the way, I wasn't saying like, you know, duplicate all the things. Yeah. But I, I was, 
yeah, I wouldn't let it like impede you from splitting things apart, right? I oh guess yeah, totally. Yeah, I, I get it. It's, it's totally. It's a prag. It's pragma, pragmatism. Uh, <laughs> I don't know how to say. It. It's a pragmatist decision, and like a lot of times, you know, we make it sound like, oh, why don't you just use that code? But a lot of times, it's you can't. The, the choice is: should I spend three hours refactoring somebody else's code so that I can reuse it? And then the next change comes down the pipeline. I have to, you know, toss the whole thing or make it even uglier. Um, and so, you know, that's the kind of decision you're faced with. And it, it could totally make sense to kind of copy pieces out of it or at least mimic it. Hey, but heads up. I think that's a different part of this whole what we're talking about here. I agree with what you just said. I think don't repeat yourself is something that you should practice as much as possible. Right. So, for instance, you're coding something like none of us code. Well, I mean, maybe Michael does, but none of us code the perfect thing up front. Right. But. <laughs> as you're going <laughs> hold on now i mean we've even talked about it sometimes seriously though like you, you'll code the entire thing in one file let's just say right and then you'll look at no. it and you'll be like okay maybe you won't but <laughs> but, but let's, let's say that you did let's let's say that you coded everything in one file then you looked at it and you said okay i can break these pieces out right because you're going to refactor it down to a better spot and what i'm getting at is this you can't start up front saying, hey, so imagine you have you have 10 teams of 10 developers each, right? You can't start and say, we're going to do this entire thing and you know everybody's going to have to know about these central things because how do you even communicate that, right? But within your own teams and even within your own code, you can take that dry thing to heart, right? So when you start writing something, you see that there's pieces duplicated, you start breaking those things out. So within your own team and within your own components, you sort of mitigated that problem, right? Now, the problem is what you said where you have this string utility that now it's probably 10 teams have 10 different versions of it because they didn't know it all existed. But at some point when, you're, when your application reaches a certain maturity level, I, I think is what we could call it, you can take a look at it and say, okay, what does is, what is our application do now, Right. What are the common pieces here? And now you can start looking at it from a more, you know, overall overarching view and say, all right, let's pull some of these things out. So I guess what I'm saying is you can't say dry all the things up front, but you can do it within certain components and within certain pieces of it. And then start as, as you become more mature, you can start doing that at a higher level. I think anyways. Yeah. I mean, definitely the things that you own are going to be easier for you to know and keep dry. It becomes yeah. a communication challenge once you get beyond yourself because, you know, we've each written enough code that we have trouble just remembering the things that we wrote, you know, a month ago, right? Like, the, and, and in fact, that's actually like a the age old problem, right? With any kind of development. And that's why, uh, you know, the, the clean code book was talk so much of that book was harping on like writing code that was expressive and self documenting because otherwise, when you come back to that code, uh, you know, a year from now, you're not going to understand it. Right. So we forget what we, what we write much less. Now I got to keep in track. I got to keep track in my head, what you wrote and what, uh, Joe wrote. So my only point on the, the whole re repeat, repeating thing was, you know, it's okay. If like, if you're working in the department that's responsible for serving ads to your customer, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to beat you up if you created a customer object that has a same method as a, cu a customer object that the customer service team created, you know, like 
Uh, yeah, I mean, okay, technically it's duplication, but it's totally different projects. Like, who cares? Like, I don't. And you got to move the business forward too, right? Like you can't you can't stop everything to try and make the most uh, minutia type decisions possible. Yeah, be pragmatic about it. Yeah. Um, it, I had another thought on this. I I know we don't want to beat it up too much more. No, what let's was do it. it. What, what was it? Beat um, it up. Beat it up. Well, remember we talked about stovepipe architectures and the the anti patterns. We talked about silos. Oh, and right. this is one of the ones that they kind of talked about, like. Yes, yeah, anti-pattern, but it's also pretty good for some things. So, oh, this is kind of a controversial one. That's actually what th- that leads me into the thought. So, the big problem, honestly, the, the I think the the major problem with trying to to trying to make everything not duplicate or what is communication. How do you communicate to ten yeah. different teams that I have this library that you should use? The I, only way that I can see that that becomes effective is if if your team, if you say, okay, uh, our team is responsible for X functionality, and if you ever need to do anything like that, you use the you know, modules, packages, whatever, projects, NuGet packages, whatever that we're publishing out. Here's where we're going to make these things available to you. And if you need things from us, you can submit uh, you know, issues, you can fork the repo, submit your own pull request, whatever. But you know, like like for example, hypothetically, like if you had, uh, you know, a group of people like, okay, Hey, we're, we're handling all of the logging within, within the company It's going to be standardized on this one thing, right? Like you're Apache and you know, you're writing log for net, uh, you know, then, yeah, you could see where like, why would you write your own logging at that point? Why would you, but how do you communicate that effectively to where it doesn't get lost in translation, right? Like how many times have you guys gotten emails that are like, Hey, security just changed and you have to be aware of X, Y, Z. And then you you know what I'm saying though? But like mm -hmm. two days later you look at it, you're like, my thing's broken. Why is it? You didn't read the email. I think at that point though, you have to look at like the large overarching cross-cutting concerns. And those are going to be your, your, your touch points right where you would do something like that and then it becomes a little bit easier to ha- to have that communication and be like okay look th- this is the people we're not you know alan you don't need to worry about writing your own logger because joe is going to be responsible for that and this is where joe's publishing it and everything and making it available right and then and then it becomes a little bit easier but when we talk about like the string extension mm-hmm. right like now we're getting into the minutia of it and it's like ah okay hold on yeah i understand dry I'm all I'm all for like staying dry, but let's let's be realistic about it. It's not the end of the world. And it's this- not, but let's say that you want to start building it up. How do you communicate it? Is it a wiki article that nobody knows about? Is it an email? Yeah. What, what, what? Uh, how I think it happens is um team A starts a project and they need a logger, so they build it. Then eventually team B starts up. And they need a logger, so they just go ahead and do it because, you know, they don't have time to stop the whole train to, you know, build a logging framework. And at some point, somebody goes in there like, what the heck? I want the dates from logging A, and I want the rolling options from logging B. Like, why aren't you guys using the same thing? You're all a bunch of idiots. And at that point, they, you know, extract it out. And so, I, I think this stuff has to kind of evolve organically. Um, and so, I, I do think that there is going to be a kind of this period of like, you know, expanding and contracting, expanding, contracting, just like Atlas said, like a lot of times you, it's, you have to start not, you know, you can't be dry right from the beginning. So. 
yeah, no 100% dry. Yeah, and I think to be clear, these problems really rear themselves when you start getting more people involved in a project, right? Mm-hmm. Like if it's just one person working on uh, on a particular project or a component or two people or even three, it's probably not a big deal, right? When you start getting to 10 people, 20 people, now communication becomes a problem because it's hard to to portray all those changes and things that are happening across. You can't know what everybody's working on. So a lot of these things come up as your application gets bigger and as more people get involved. I think, wasn't it this book where they had like some kind of numbers as to like the number of people in a particular project, but it, yeah, I seem to recall, like for some reason I have this number five stuck in my head. That was like, that's the maximum amount of developers you want in the same, same (laughs) set of code. And I don't recall where that came from. I don't know if that was here. I, if it was, I don't remember where it was. But you know what kind of stinks? Um, just the the way that software tends to kind of grow organically, and the way you kind of do stuff, and maybe not you know keeping stuff dry, and the way it just kind of starts out. The new people at a company are always at an advantage. They always get to look at the code and say, "Hey, you guys are a bunch of idiots. This needs to be refactored out to something." But it, they weren't there for those pragmatic decisions that got the company to the point where they could even hire that new person, right? Yeah. Uh, it's totally not fair. And I should remember this next time I start a new job and go there and, and you know, start railing on the source code, but I won't <laughs> because <laughs> that's not the way of things. Way? Yeah. yeah. And it's kind of not fair. It's, you know, if I did start a new job, like I get to complain about the source code because I've had to, you know, hear about it for years myself. So, you know, we got to pay it forward. Yeah. It's it's a tough situation. Actually, I think it was towards the beginning of this study. There was like, once you got past five, it was like it doubled. You got uh, to five and like it, the, the time to complete a task. Yeah. As the engineering staff grew, then it just, yeah, the curve got really tall quick. Yeah. That was the beginning of this book. That That was, those couple chapters were amazing. I don't think he specifically called out the number five. It was just the way the, the particular... That chart looks. Yeah. Example chart. Cool. So the next one we have on here is, so what we said last was for most applications, maintainability is more important than reusability. And the ability to change and deploy a single component is typically safer than having to redeploy an entire app, which is what Joe said a minute ago, right? That's what Alos kind of said. It's like, you know, if I've got my own stuff and then, you know, I can change it as needed without worrying about breaking other stuff. So it's just kind of safer. Yep. So uh, they then go on to say that if classes are tightly bound, then they should be in a single component, right? Like if there's just crazy amounts of dependencies, they belong together. Yeah, this is back to where, you know, the the CCP is tied to the SRP. (laughs) There'll be a (laughs) test on this alphabet soup later. I'm down with OCP. Well, this kind of made me think about like if you've ever had that argument um, somewhere you're working where you're like, okay, we've got these kind of interfaces, we've got these classes, and uh, these things kind of need to know about each other. We've got three libraries at least in play. Maybe we should have like a definitions project that just has all the interfaces. And like, you know, there's some pros to that, but one con could be like, well, anytime I go add something to the interface in its own project, by definition, I've got at least one of the place to change. So this is at least one argument that says like, if you're changing these two things, two or more things together all the time, they probably shouldn't be separated. Mm. Yeah. yeah. It, but it, again, in the next section, we get into this pretty deep um, in, mm-hmm. in the next episode. So we'll, we'll hold off on that. What just happened? Did it disappear? 
Way to go, Alan. Man. Delete the show notes, why don't you? I don't think I did that. that was All right, show's days. over. Yeah, we're done. Um, Thanks for listening. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, there's at least another hour left. Yeah. So, oh, crap. Don't go anywhere. So, <laughs> so there was another, you know, because there was this relationship between uh, the single respo- responsibility principle and the common closure principle, he was able to give a new definition that summarized both. Uh, so I wanted to share that because I thought it was pretty neat. Gather together those things that change at the same times and for the same reason. Separate those things that change at different times or for different reasons. Yep. And that's a yeah, so like summary. the email example, that's a great example of something that should be separated because just because you either do SMTP or um, you know Amazon SES or whatever Azure calls it, shouldn't be changing and compiling and uh, redeploying your main business logic, right? At the same time, if you've got two business units that change together often, you know, maybe even all the time, then maybe those should be in their own logical component. Which kind of ties back into the 12 factor app to where you should use just a port and a URL yeah. to go back to whatever your external dependency is. So don't write your email service into your application. You just access some service on some port. Which makes a you lot know, um, of sense. We spent a lot of time, uh, the, like more recently, kind of talking about bigger architectural stuff like the 12-factor app and cleaning architecture and domain-driven design. And, um, and we're still I, I think it's been really it. healthy for, for me because there's a lot of times I, when I've had these arguments, we've all had those arguments. You know, the same stuff we're talking about now, but these are actually like well-thought-out kind of opinions on some of those things that we were just kind of, you know, spitballing. So if I was on one side of an argument, I was drawing from experience and um, you know, maybe like my own kind of tainted views of things, but now I've got something that's actually been like thought out and, you know, had an editor look at it and uh, uh, a lot of people have really agreed on. So it's nice to have compelling arguments. The next time I think like, should this be its own project or not? I can kind of reference back to the book and, and take a, another look at it and kind of view it from a, a more objective angle. Because I don't know about you, but every boss I've ever had, that works great for them. Like I can just yeah. pick up the book and be like, oh, but, it's, but the book says, and they're going to be like, yeah, I don't care. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I might've done that once or twice. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> well, they, they say like for, you know, a negotiation tactic is to like basically have some sort of reference point. Like, so if you're talking about salary or something, you'd be like, well, this guy makes that, or, you know, this person makes that. And so say for the book, it's like, Hey, you and I disagree on something. Let's see what the book says that I just happen to know agrees with me. Hmm. Right. I mean, here's the thing, though. In complete honesty and not even being facetious at all, the the beginning of this book kind of ties it all out for you, right? Like, if you take to heart some of these things, you can improve. You can improve the amount of time it takes for you to do your software. You can improve the the st- the stability of your software, the maintainability, all of it, right? Like they proved it out. It wasn't, it wasn't just, Hey, I have these good ideas and let's mm-hmm. put it down. It was, Hey, we have metrics to back this stuff up, right? We have numbers that show that when you do things a particular way, your costs go way down, your stability, your bugs go way down. Like th- there's just, there's a lot of tangible, man, you talk about metrics and there. I'm so, I can't wait to get, yeah. there's a part that I can't wait oh, to I get know. to. It's a, there, yeah, the next chapter is really good. So, it was yeah, so just this episode it. sucks, guys. The next episode's going to be where it's all at. That's because <laughs> Alan deleted the show notes midway through, so we're going to wing it from here. Oh, I just man. got tired of typing. <laughs> um, but I do I do want to say that um, a lot of the stuff that we, like, we read about, especially with the, the architecture stuff, like these are decisions that I was kind of making and I kind of had feelings or thoughts or whatever based on experience. 
But I wasn't deliberately making the decisions a lot of times. I was just kind of doing what felt naturally, like including stuff in the same project or breaking out, you know, just because it kind of felt right. But now that I've kind of got this language and I've, I've kind of thought about these things a little bit, I, I've got, um, at least I'm making decisions. I mean, I might totally ignore the advice, but at least I've kind of considered it and have uh, read a little bit about it. So I've been really happy with the book. I mean, it's, it's hard because Clean Code was so influential. And like had so many kind of new concepts and, and so many like kind of core beliefs that I've adopted that in a lot of ways as I read clean architecture, I kind of keep comparing it to that. And I'm like looking for those like groundbreaking insights. And I haven't been having that so much as I have been kind of having like the, uh, the kind of thoughts where like, you know, the next day I'm just kind of still chewing on it and trying to kind of see my way through it and, and understand it. So it's been really good, but it's been really different. I think I think I know why, though. Is because I think, and correct me, you tell me if you agree or disagree, but with clean code, that's something like that's your day to day. You're you're coding day to day. You don't necessarily architect day to day, right? I mean, w- some architecture happens, and we you might do it, but it's not like it's yeah, it's not the same thing. So no, that's right. why you. That's why when you read clean code, you're like, oh well, I can immediately put this to work right now, right now today. You read clean architecture, and while it's great, you're like, well, I don't have any new components that I need to create or break out. I still have this right. other component that I gotta like uh, create, you know, fix this thing or add this new feature to. But they're already split the way they are right now. Like, it, you're not gonna be splitting components out and creating components as often as you're gonna be writing code well and because also let's let's be honest like a lot of times when you do this there's additional things you have to take into consideration right like build orders and and all kinds of things like it's not as simple as hey i'm going to implement this code change that that i learned about in clean code now all of a sudden you're going to start breaking projects out and versioning those things like there's other things that have to happen Mm -hmm. in order to make that work um yeah I, i will say one of the funny things that you were talking about, you know, like you're, you're constantly thinking about, should I break this out into its own project or whatever? Like I've literally not done that because I'm afraid that if you don't get enough into that project, somebody else is going to latch onto it and dirty it up. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. I've, I've seriously had those, those internal things where it's like, man, I, I, I know the road that I want it to go down. And if I create this thing and somebody else takes it and, and slings it slings mud on it, I'm going to be really mad about it. And, and I, I struggle with that piece of it. Yeah. And I don't even really know a good answer. I don't even know that that's the right thing to do. I think it depends. Like if you know, going into it, that it's going to be a pretty sizable amount of work already, then you already, then in the past, I've been like, okay, well, I, I can probably go ahead and just assume that I'm going to be safe in a separate package. And if, if I find out later that it's it's not, then I, I can always just refactor it into something else. But um, yeah, I'm with you. More often than not, I think, oh, this probably isn't going to be that big a thing. So I'm just going to add it into something else. And then I end up with these like gigantic libraries that I feel ultra guilty about that I'm like, man, I should really break out some of those namespaces. Or should I? Yeah. Well, one thing that um, this book has got me doing is drawing a, a few more pictures. Like I've kind of noticed recently, like I would go to kind of like write a, say a, like a write a, you know, email or something, uh, write something to explain how a process works. And I realized like, man, this is like seven sentences. It's like really complicated. Like why can't I express this, you know, more clearly? Like, you know, nobody who's reading this email has the time to really study this paragraph. Like I need to express this information and all of this information 
in a more concise way. And so next thing you know, I'm drawing pictures. And as I'm drawing the pictures, I start to realize like, you know, let's say I've got two or three systems in place. I'm drawing little boxes and arrows. And uh, as I'm drawing, I'm like, oh, wait, but it actually goes back at this point. And then it goes over here and my picture starts looking messy too. So I'm like, you know what? The words are messy. My diagram is messy. Maybe my code is messy, mm. right? Maybe I should take a look at this. And so by with the pictures, you start what you start doing is kind of like erasing some of those back lines and saying, okay, you know, that's either not an important detail or why don't I move the lines that were happening over here? Like, why do I need to go back? And so just by kind of drawing it out, it kind of helped me make a little better decisions about where things should be in the kind of flow diagram. It's like, maybe this thing shouldn't be back in this class or back in this module. Maybe it should kind of stick together because more of the, say, the formatting logic stuff happens over here. So maybe I could move this stuff till later in the process. And then rather than me having, you know, three blue cubes that say like, Format headers, format body, format output. I have a format stage. So by just kind of drawing these pictures and trying to describe stuff in words, it's informing and making my code better to an outside observer. Because you can visualize it at that point, right? Hey, what tool do you use just out of curiosity? Gliffy. Gliffy? Okay. Yeah, they have a free tier. It's an LSTM product integrates with, with Jira and stuff really nicely. Cool. All right. Well, that's the common closure principle. <laughs> uh, yes. We, we never talk long about anything. Oh. <laughs> Just a few more of these to go. <laughs> uh, I got my tip of the week. I hope you're sitting <laughs> in traffic right now, maybe. I don't, I don't know. Uh, bored out of your mind. <laughs> yes. All right. All right. So let's get into the common reuse principle. The curb. <laughs> or the curb. Ah. Uh. All yeah, right. just to restate that previous one, that was a common closure principle, and it dealt with keeping classes that change together together. Yes. So we've got the re- the release equivalence principle, which is basically good version numbers. The common closure principle, which is for keeping classes together that change together. And now the common reuse principle. So yep. in in a single statement. The common reuse principle is don't force users of a component to depend on things that they don't need. We're all so guilty of this. So guilty. Everybody's guilty of this. So guilty. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so, absolutely. Joe writes a great email client, and I want to use it, but Joe's email client has a dependency on Alan's logging client. So in order to get Joe's email client, I have to also use Alan's logging client. But it's amazing. So you're happy about that. Which I didn't want because I wrote my own because I didn't <laughs> adhere to dry. And you know, you would be so lucky if it was just the logging framework. More likely if that email code is in, is touching anything else, is in any other package, it has got database uh, mm-hmm. code in there. It's got maybe website code in there. Right, it's got all this stuff that if you just want to send an email from a simple executable, like all that stuff's coming along for the ride, and it makes it easy for somebody, like say, who's working on the website, to say, add a little call that logs an email via the database. But if this little, you know, executable doesn't have access to that database, now all of a sudden it can't send emails. Like, what sense does that make? Mm-hmm. And it's hard to see what's going on when you've got these sort of lines going on. So you would think, like, my executable didn't need database access. Like, why it's not? doing anything it's not getting any data it doesn't need a session id from a cookie why is that in my email code but this stuff gets kind of dirty together and even if there weren't mistakes made and those cl- this clearly are mistakes and it's not really addressed by the you know that principle there should be a don't make mistakes principle 
but it's still just the idea of this like this email code that's like got a very specific functionality and it's now it's being tied with this other stuff and so anytime you need one the other comes along well here's here's a a great way to think about it okay so there was this uh the idea here is that if your component has a dependency on another component and then that uh, dependent upon component is changed, you need to reevaluate your component or possibly even recompile it. And you might think like, okay, in the example that I gave about like, hey, I want to use Joe's email client, which uses Alan's logging client. You might think like, that doesn't sound so bad. What if uh, you were trying to meet some kind of um, government type compliance? Okay. And you know, that could be extremely stringent to meet, uh, and, and to get a certain, um, uh, certification, right. That your application is compliant with whatever their requirements are right now. Alan's logging client changes, right. And that ends up coming along for the ride, but it could introduce new security flaws that now break my certification. Or, or risk, put my certification at risk. Yep. Yeah, and unnecessarily. It doesn't have to happen. You know, you can imagine the logging framework changes its output, so now it uses, uh, you know, React instead of jQuery. React has got something uh, that, uh, you know, HIPAA compliance or whatever doesn't like. And all of a sudden, you can't release your software to your customers because your logging framework, you know, uses React, which is totally, you know, sideways from React. It has nothing to do with your product. Right. And again, like the other one was tied to another principle in solid. This one also was, this was related to the interface segregation principle in solid. So, I mean, he's drawing correlations. And we talked about this earlier in the book. He's drawing correlations from your day-to-day stuff where you're working in classes and all that kind of stuff. And now we're just bringing it out at a bigger level, right? Like parts of a system as opposed to classes within a part. Mm-hmm. And, yep. and I'm a big fan of that ISP. Yep. And, and so this, this is the, um, the age old question here. Should the code be in its own project? Does it change together? It's really the answer, right? Yep. And I, I should mention, I just said ISP, like we just talked about trying to not use, uh, acronyms, but like, if you're going to read this book, like you should, uh, I mean, it's going to go over solid, but like you definitely want to be at least familiar with the solid principles. And otherwise you're going to be doing a lot of back, backsliding, backpaging figure out what's going on. Same with these three principles here. Um, They come up a lot in the book. Like it is not for people who don't like backpaging. I I couldn't imagine reading it on a Kindle actually because of that. Like, you know, maybe you could kind of hover over or something like kind of look up definitions. Maybe it would actually be easier, but I definitely found myself flipping back, especially when looking at diagrams. Yeah. I actually find that to be true for a lot of technical books. It's harder on a Kindle or, or even any kind of tablet, but yeah. Yeah, it can be frustrating. Hey, by the way, Solid, we did talk an entire episode about Solid, and that was episode seven. Yep. So, uh, But didn't we also just like rehash it in like 69? Uh, sort yep. As it related well, to... Yeah, in the architecture. To this book, yeah. Uh, 68. 68. Oh, was 69 68? was spending your money. No, that was 70. 70. Yep, you're 70. right. That's my <laughs> We're at 71 right now. All right. I'm, I'm caught up. <laughs> welcome to the show yes hi uh so so joe is saying that we won't use any more acronyms so we said that during the ccp section and now we're saying that again during the crp section when we brought up the isp correct (laughs) 
<laughs> Got it. We're all on board. All right. Yeah. So we want we want the idea here with the common reuse principle is that we want the classes in our component to be inseparable. You can't wait. You were going to say? Did that spark a thought? You you. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I just wanted to give an example, though. I didn't mean to cut you off. I just got excited about my example. Oh, because you have <laughs> you looked like super excited. So I was like, oh, man. I, yeah, like, I got so excited. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so, so. Forget it. That's go, it. We're done. Go. We're done. Go. I'm, I'm done. I'm so excited about this right now. Apparently. <laughs> All right. Sorry. Sorry. I want, I want to, to talk it. to you about system.drawing.point. Okay. So in .NET, um, it's a basically just a real simple, it might even be a struct, not a class. Like it's just got an X and a Y coordinate. And um, if you're doing a lot of graphing and stuff, if you're doing some sort of like, you know, charting or some basic, uh, you know, linear kind of algebra type stuff, like it makes sense to kind of have a, a simple class that has like an X and Y that you can pass in, you know, as a, um, the different functions and stuff. And I always thought it was funny that this point class that like would end up getting used in all sorts of other people's, like you would see this all the time in other people's source code, was in system.drawing.point. And so you would see these libraries that were like really math heavy would have a, a reference to system.drawing, which is a, a namespace in, in .NET land typically reserved for like drawing stuff. So it's kind of funny where you've got a point, which is often used for graphical and 2D, 3D type stuff, but also you've got this kind of notion of a, an X and Y or an X, Y, Z um, that can be used for mathematical stuff that can be very far away from graphical. Hmm. So, I mean, it's maybe this not that really... an example <laughs> where not adhering to dry would have been okay so that you don't bring in all those other dependencies. Yeah, I mean, I could have just... For e a simple you know, anyone could just like as easily create one. But even like there's some math functions that kind of rely on it and stuff. So it's just kind of a, a weird case where you've got something that's like uh, you've got a, a dependency that you might be bringing in that like seems totally unrelated. And it's so easy to slip in there and not realize that you're bringing in this whole big DLL. Uh, and that's the kind of DLL that probably has all sorts of security problems with it, too. Mm -hmm. So it's just kind of funny. Yeah. So the other principles that we've talked about so far were more, let's say, positive about like what how you should put things together, what you should do, what you you know, this one, the common reuse principle is more about what classes, what a, what a component shouldn't, uh, what classes shouldn't be together rather than what should, right? So if, if you're, if you're putting classes inside of your component that aren't tightly bound together, that, that are separable, then why is it in that same component? Yep. Yep. Oh, I think I had that written a different way there. Cl therefore, classes that are not tightly bound should not be in the same component. Yeah, whatever. Yep. And then wrapping it up, it <laughs> says don't depend on things you don't need, right? Like that's that's what it started with and that's what it ends with. Yeah. Know? Oh, this was, yeah. This, that was another example of where he like redefined the interface segregation principle to go along with the common reuse principle. Don't depend on things you don't need. So, okay, so I, I wanted to, to your system dot drawing dot point. I would argue that maybe they're doing it wrong if they're going to bring in all those additional dependencies, right? For something yeah, it's not a great example. Need. Like like most of my examples, it's no, not it really adequate to the. the no, <laughs> I thought that was a good one. I mean, you're bringing like in it. an entire drawing namespace for a single thing that that should have been done differently somehow, yeah. some way. And, yeah, but in this case, like, I mean, you're at least using a class. Like, you can imagine, like, there's probably been all sorts of times when you people bring along DLLs that aren't needed at all. Um, but uh, just to kind of recap. Yeah. 
I just wanted to mention those three because it's going to come up again. We're still talking about these three, and now we're going to start mixing them all together. So we talked about the release equivalence principle, which is all about releasing uh, sh- shared comp- or software components with good version numbers and notifications and documentation. We've got the common closure principle, which is all about keeping things that change together. And we've got the common reuse principle, which is all about keeping unnecessary dependencies out. There we got it. Yeah. All right. So a couple questions for you. If you're constantly releasing more than one component at a time, should that be a single component? If I've got, say, a web library and a core library that's got my business logic, and whenever I make a change to the website, it generally needs a change to the core library and vice versa. Mm. No. Should not. I don't think. Okay, and I would say that the reason is you've probably got other stuff that depends on that core, right? That's what I was going to say. That core... It, that that's more of a dependency chain there. I think that core should be compilable on its own, right? It should, it, if it does have dependencies, it should be on other pieces that, that it needs, but it should be compilable on its own. But yet that other, the website itself or whatever's using that business library, when that thing's being built, sure, it needs to go build the other one and then bring it in because it depends on it. But no, they should not be a single component. Yeah, so I thought that was really interesting that neither of the three principles we talked about really kind of address that use case. And that's the kind of case where something is a broken out module because it's reused. I mean, we've got the release reuse principle, but it didn't really talk so much about um, breaking stuff out in such a way as to make that easier. At least that's not what I got out of it. Um, But I just thought it was kind of interesting to kind of hear these three principles and then kind of think of a, you know, at least a somewhat common use case that kind of slipped through the cracks or at least kind of flew in the, in the face of a, a one of those guys. So but wasn't I thought that was the interesting. The, the reuse release uh, equivalence principle. Well, that was all about having those good release numbers and notifications um, and having a theme, but it didn't really talk about where you should draw those lines between releases and what should have separate release numbers. Well, every- wouldn't you have a separate release number for each of your components? Again, let's not talk about the marketing version of all of the aggregate of the components, but for each individual component. So your, I think you gave a example of the core, uh, what'd you call it? The core project? It's a core library. Core all your library business, business that, logic that would lives. have its own version number that could, you know, um, depending on how it's released, let's say if it was a NuGet package, right? Like it, it could be published out as a NuGet package and then the web component um, in your example could you know, use that latest NuGet package as needed, right? So it might Yeah, I was just imagining in. like, you know, there's a case where you add a new column or something and so you've got to go add it to your DTOs or your, you know, your beans or whatever you want to call them, your, your POCOs and then you go uh, update some JavaScript and HTML to, to, you know, consume that data and actually display it. And so it's, you've got a case where those two things like change like together all the time, but it's, there's a really compelling reason for keeping them separate because other stuff needs to be able to reuse that core and it doesn't want to, you don't want to carry along those unnecessary dependencies from the website. Well, I guess maybe that's, maybe that's it. Maybe it's the common reuse principle applies there because we say 
we want to break these two out because we don't want to carry along that website baggage. They shouldn't depend on each other. Hey, um, just a, we, we've said NuGet several times. Uh, just for anybody else out there, that is the package manager for .NET. And so, like, if you're talking about a Java, there's a Gradle, there's Maven, there's other ones, right? For J- JavaScript, there's NPM and all that. So um, I just didn't want anybody to get hung up on, what's this NuGet thing, right? Like, if that's not your language du jour for C sharp or whatever, you know, or refer to CPAN from now on or CPAN. There yeah. you go. Um, it's, it's uh NPM for .NET. It, that's basically what it is. Probably everybody knows NPM at this point. <laughs> I would think just about, um, yep. so, uh, I don't know if there was anything else I had a thought on there. I don't think I did. I'm pretty happy. I'm pretty happy with that justification. So I feel good about it. I did have one question. So just out of curiosity, you guys, so you had this core thing, you had this, um, the website, we'll call it. Do you version these things the same? So what do you, what do you call version? So, so, so for instance, your core is on 2.0. Do you make your website 2.0? No, you don't. No, I see no reason why the components that why the components need to have the same version number. Okay. Like they should be able to, the ver, those version numbers should be able to uh, increment independently of one another. It's the aggregate, it's the aggregation of all of those things that make a product that's going to fall under one specific, you know, version label that the, you know, your marketing group is going to define. Right. Right. But, you know, Windows 95, you know, for example, you open up any one program in there and go to a, a help about, right? Like each one had a different version, right? Right. And so those were each of the different components, you know, notepad versus calculator. And then if you fast forward to windows 10 and bring up those same versions, it's still windows 10 and there's a build number associated to it. Like 1703 or whatever it is now. Uh, but when you go to open up calculator or notepad and go to help about, Right. Those are different version numbers. And and inside of that version number for like calculator, for example, or notepad, there's a whole set of components that that version is aggregating together, that that notepad version is aggregating together to represent what it takes to make that notepad. Right. But so the key here, I think I wanted to point it out for that purpose. Right. Like if you, if you version them all together, it'd be really easy to figure out. Right. But the key part here is when you have these things in separate versions, that means you have to be able to maintain what goes with what, right? And, and that's where... Yeah, if you maintaining got new, dependencies. Maintaining your dependencies, right? So anytime if, you introduce dependencies, it's always that you're introducing maintenance nightmares for yourself, always. If you don't have some sort of automation in place to handle <clears throat> it all for you, right? Even if you do, it's still a p- yeah. hassle. It, it is a hassle, but like if you look at things like NPM, for instance, right? When you do a... um like npm install, you know, whatever package and then save dev or something. You can actually tell it I want anything like you said earlier or you said greater or equal to this version or with this main version mm-hmm. or whatever, right? So it it's it's a whole nother thing. This is where devops and all that kind of stuff comes in, right? But I did want to point that out that you know, the version should be independent and, you know, just what you said, yeah. but there is some overhead to that to, to be aware of. Cause let's flip to the extreme for a moment. Let's say that you did take the approach to where, uh, my, my core library is, uh, 1.0 and it's extremely stable, right? Well written, tested, whatever. Uh, and then 
but we're iterating constantly on our website. And so our website's about to become 2.0. Now I got to go make an arbitrary version number change and republish out the library for no reason, Other but just because I want the, the version numbers right. to match. Right. Like that seems crazy, yeah, right? Yeah. So right away, we can reason about that that doesn't, that doesn't even seem like a logical idea that anyone should, you know, should do. Cool. And think about this example too. Like if I've got a C-sharp uh, 7 project, what uh, version of .NET is that? Right. Like, yeah. It'd be kind of nice if those were in lockstep, but I understand why they're not. Right. And what version of Visual Studio does that require? And what versions of Windows can I deploy that on? Like, it would be nice if th- those things were in sync, but you can imagine if, like, they tried to release all that stuff all at the same time, you know, it would be a major pain in the butt and would really slow things down. And so I'm on board with keeping things separate, but I also recognize that it's a huge pain in the butt. And they, I'm sure there's big lookup tables on Microsoft.com where you can figure that stuff out. And it stinks that we need that, but I don't, you know, I still think it's the right answer. Yeah, I mean, basically what this does is, I, and the reason why I wanted to ask the question is I wanted everybody to be aware that there's a non-human readable or non-human followable part of this, right? Like it's a big matrices at some point of, you know, this depends on this version and then this thing depends on that version. And it's not something you're going to chain together mentally, right? Like it needs to be something that's automated. And and so the version numbers really shouldn't care to you as a person looking at it. And this is why the semantic versioning is so important. Yes. Because when those machines are reading, you need to have a consistent um, order to the, you know, to the chaos. Yep. yep. Definitely. All right. We have one more question there, Joe. I don't know if we, uh, did we hit this one? Yeah, I've seen this on Twitter recently. Um uh, there's a lot of, um, I think the tide is kind of turned on microservices. A lot of people kind of give them a lot of grief nowadays. Um, at least, you know, the circles I'm hanging in. Um, but, uh, one thing that's kind of, um, funny is I, I guess a lot of people have kind of adopted them and not done them so greatly. And so, <laughs> and so, um, like I saw this come on Twitter the other day. It said, if you're redeploying all of your microservices at the same time, then, you're doing it wrong. It's, it's totally defeating the, the point of, of microservices, right? So, so, in the, so I thought it was a funny example. Yeah, in the groups, Joe's hanging out slash r slash I hate microservices. <laughs> they don't like them. <laughs> yeah, I, I was actually thinking like uh, at his board game conventions, they're talk, they're sitting around, you know, while they're rolling the dice, talking about microservices. Uh, yeah, awesome. Oh, so microservice, what gives? <laughs> it's pretty much oh, I got a twenty. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow is that how they talk really? uh, I don't know yeah. I had to do some other voice <laughs> uh, are you guys not seeing the, the hate for microservices I, you know what I mean it's one of those things that I've always seen hate for it because it makes total sense from a scalable perspective right but man does that scalability come at a cost right like it is not simple anymore it's just not i mean now you got to worry about endpoints going down you have to worry about hey how many are alive hey hey did this already hit one like there's so many everything i've read about microservices and everything i've even tried to do personally with microservices is you have to code so much um uh failure type stuff into it that it's I, i mean it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work mm-hmm. for unless you need that scalability, it really doesn't make sense in a and lot of cases. The, that's where I've seen backlash, where it's like 
hey, let's go ahead and code this thing up as a microservice up front. And it's like, wait, why? Yeah. Do we even know that that's necessary yet? Right. Like, why don't we wait till we find out that we need it? Yeah. I mean, Amazon, yeah. Okay. They need microservices, right? Like they need to scale out to, you know, millions of hits a second, right? Maybe they do. I'm sure that there are projects within Amazon though that don't fall into that realm. Totally. Totally. Yeah. I mean, their website, their shopping website. Yes. But yeah, I mean, many things, a lot of times, I mean, there's even, so you've seen the backlash on it. I've seen things where people are like monolith is the way to go, right? Like mm-hmm. it's simpler to maintain the hardware is so much faster nowadays that it doesn't make sense to deal with this kind of stuff. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting. Yep. Although yeah, the places I'm hanging on Reddit, like it's definitely uh, there's a, a lot of negativity. I, just, I was uh, somebody posted an article about cloud something or other, you know, like cloud innovations coming out of reInvent in uh, November from AWS, and it's like one of the top comments was still like, "It's just computers." <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, anyway, <laughs> all right. So you're excited about? I wonder this what next they wanted piece, right? it to be. Right? If they didn't want it to be computers. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, am I am I excited or outlaw? Uh, I think outlaw was because this awesome. is where we start getting into some diagrams. So we talked. I already gave a hint about the tension triangle, and this is what we're leading into now: the tension diagram for component cohesion. So we talked about these three principles: the release or reuse release equivalence principle, the common closure principle, and the uh, common reuse principle. So picture each one of those as a as a point on an equilateral triangle, right? And um, what you're going to end up with is, man, how am I going to describe this visually? Or not visually, but voc- verbally. Um, you're going to try to swing that triangle to where at times it's not going to be an equilateral triangle. Right. So in the beginning of your development, it might be positioned in more towards one way towards uh, versus the other. Right. One of those one of those legs of the triangle might be shorter. Um, but th- you're ultimately going to want to try to get to a triangle that makes sense for your given project. Right. But there's this relationship between them. So uh, if uh, opposite from the reuse equivalency principle is going to be the line across from that point is going to be the hard to reuse. Right. Does that sound easy enough to understand what I'm trying to say? Yeah. I think I've got that written out below. I kind of like wrote out like what the three problems were. And if, you know, if you have that problem, like which kind of principle was at play here? Yeah. It's hard to like try to describe this triangle, but so uh, let me just finish this then. So across from the common reuse principle, the line across from that on the triangle is going to be that it's, you're going to have too many unneeded releases, right? And then the line across from the common closure principle is going to be that you're going to have too many uh, components that change. So if I, if I put my finger on the common reuse principle, it's at the bottom of the triangle. The triangle is pointing down. I drag it down. So it's getting further and further from those other two points. What is that doing to my code? It's now going to be too many components to change, and it's going to be hard to reuse. Right? Uh-uh. 
I don't think so. If you drag that bottom point down. But drag that bottom point down. The edges of the diagram describe the cost of abandoning the principle on the opposite vertex. No, no, no. The cost. It, it's the things between. It, so, no. As, as you drag that common reuse principle further down, right, then that means that you're focusing on the re, reuse, release equivalency principle and the common closure principle, which means you're going to have too many unneeded releases. Okay. That's how I interpret it. But now that I'm looking at it, it says the edges represent the cost of abandoning the principle of the opposite vertex. So the edges are the cost. So if my if I'm right. having too many yeah, unneeded focus, releases that, that focus that goes along with what I said. If you focused okay. on the top two points, which would be okay, you said that the common reuse principle was on the bottom. So your release equivalency principle is on the top left and the common closure principle is on the top right. So if you focused on those top two points, then the line between them is that there's too many unneeded releases, right? So if you were to focus on those top two points, that would mean that that common re, uh, reuse principle is further away. So the cost of abandoning the common reuse principle is the line between the release equivalency principle and the common closure principle, which is that it's too many unneeded releases. Okay, and which one was the reuse principle again? <laughs> Um, okay, that that was uh, unnecessary dependencies. So if I've got too many unnecessary dependencies, and I'm going to have too many unneeded releases. Yes. Boy, who would have thought that talking about a triangle would be so difficult? So I think the problem is you can't yep. talk about dragging these, really. You have to talk about if you focus on one or two of these things at a time, right? Like what, what happens? You kind of have to talk about them in pairs. Yeah, that's the reality. You're yeah. not There's no equation to like how you're going to draw this triangle. It's just like, hey, these are the three points. Which one are you going to focus your effort on? And you know anything that you're not focusing effort on, then the cost is directly opposite that point. The yep. line directly opposite that point is your cost. Okay. So I'm happy with how I wrote things then. So if I say we have too many unneeded releases, what's the problem? Then the answer is that I've got unnecessary dependencies because of the common reuse principle. If I say, hey, our code is too hard to reuse, then the problem is that our release slash reuse uh, equivalence principle... <laughs> is out of whack so we're not notifying of our releases we're not documenting well enough and if we say are saying that our we have too many components changing every time we do a release that means we've got a problem with our common closure principle so we've got components with mixed functionality so we're too many components are changing because things are spread out too much yes that sounds like a good summary of it to me Yes. Yeah. So that's pretty cool. So you can say, you can kind of look at this triangle and say like, you know what? My business has a bigger problem. We probably have all three of these problems, but I have a bigger problem right now with our, my code being too hard to reuse. So the problem there is probably lack of documentation, probably um, lack of cohesive themes around releases. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I like that. I feel good about that. 
And I mean, to sum it all up, they say really the key is trying to find a balance between these things because there's no perfect, there's no perfect scenario, right? Like there never is. Yeah. yeah just, and they even talk about how the the beginning of a project is going to be skewed. Like you don't want an equilateral triangle. You're probably going to be skewed to one of the other sides. Actually, I think they even said you want to skew towards the um, release, right? Um, well, so the the specifically the quote that he was that Joe's referring to is, um, oh, this is building right. on to the other quote that I mentioned about the good architect finds the tension, uh, finds a position in the tension triangle that meets the current concerns of the team, but is aware that those concerns will change over time. And he says, for example, early in the development of a project, the common closure principle is much more important than the reuse release equivalency principle because develop developability is more important than reuse. Right. So that triangle is going to constantly be shifting and evolving. It's going to look, you know, wiggly. Yep. Where yeah, and unfortunately, I'm not seeing it, like this picture up anywhere on the internet, so I don't think we'll be able to share it. <laughs> we don't want to take a screenshot of the book, you know. Um, but uh, uh, it's a good book; you should buy it anyway. And uh, are we doing a giveaway <laughs> this episode? I guess we are. <laughs> I guess that probably means we should pick a winner for the last episode too. <laughs> Did we not? <laughs> I forgot. Um, Fifty dollar gift card we gave away uh, last episode. Oh man. Oh, I thought that well, was we have to because your... I factored it into my calculations. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. We'll, we'll figure that out before. Um, yeah. Uh, before so the winner of the $50 gift card is uh, Michael Outlaw. Wow. Oh, that's congratulations. Oh, wow. How did that work out? Yep. So we'll, we'll figure that uh, out before this goes out. So nice of you guys. We'll yep. So you. check your emails. We'll be yes. sending something out. Yes. Check your emails. But we'll do, we'll do a uh, book giveaway on this one. So if you'll leave a comment on this episode, codingblocks.net slash episode 71. We will give away another copy of this very excellent book. So what does this all mean? Yes. Basil. We've gotten through, we've gotten through these three principles and a very difficult to explain triangle. I don't know if you know how triangles work, but who knew that they could be so complicated? <laughs> yeah. And uh, that's about it. It's a, it's a big tug of war. And uh, I, I kind of like that there are no clean answers. It makes me feel like less of a dunce that I struggle with this stuff all the time. So uh, you should let us know what you think in the comments and win the book. It, it definitely and helps with our uh, our imposter syndrome. Uh, absolutely. Problem. Yep. Yep. Um, so uh, that's it for the episode. We are going to try and keep it short tonight. <laughs> so hopefully you enjoyed. Uh, and if you did, please leave us a review. If you go to codingblocks.net slash review, we tried to make it really easy for you. We've got all the links there. And so you don't have to install iTunes. Um, Podchaser is an excellent place. You can actually leave a review per episode. Um, and, uh, you know, there's Stitcher. And there's other ways too. So if you just go to codingblocks.net slash review, um, then we'll make that easy for you. And uh, we also have really excellent show notes there, which you can find at uh, slash episode 70. All right. And now it's time for my favorite part of the show. Oh. Survey says. <laughs> oh, man. He took I feel like. I feel, oh, like, I feel like I just like knocked the ice cream cone out of your hand. <laughs> I'm sorry. You, you can you can do it. Freaking Florida boys. Wow. <laughs> All right. So. I thought I had uh, more choices in here. Hold on. Oh, no. I only so had three I, choices. Like I, I threw so, your flip-flop into the lake. So, 
our uh, in our survey says section from our last episode, we asked, "Do you trust your family members to buy the tech that you want?" Because Christmas is coming up, the holiday season's coming up, and uh, you know this this is the season to give, right? So your choices were. Of course, I trust my family to get the things that I want. Why wouldn't I trust them, right? Or, well, I'm hoping for the best, but please include gift receipts just in case. And then lastly, no way. Even with a very specific list, things will go sideways. I could give them the link. Here's the <laughs> click the link. All right. So. Uh, any mini money mo, Alan, you're going first. What right. do you think was the most popular option with present uh percent of the vote? I'm gonna go with I'm hoping for the best, but please include gift receipts. Okay. And we'll say I like how you put a question mark on the end of your answer. <laughs> right? You're so confident in yes. it. Yes. I and I'll go with 30%. 30%. All right. Remember, price is right rules. Yes. All right, Joe, what say you? I'm going to say no way. Even with specific list, things will go sideways. Okay. But really, it's because I already have everything I want, and I buy it as soon as I, like, as soon as it comes out. <laughs> so what's the percentage, sir? Uh, it's full 34%. All right. 34%. Baller. And by the way, we know he's lying about he buys it as soon as he wants it. No. That, that's such a lie. No. It's because I don't want very many things. I've seen him drool over like a specific guitar or a mountain bike. And then like, you know, six months later, he still doesn't have it. Right, right. Yeah. But I, six months later, I don't want it anymore. <laughs> that's why you don't have it. You wait yeah. your want out, basically. Yeah. It's the benefit of being flippant about my desires. Like, <laughs> you just wait long enough, you just don't care anymore. <laughs> It's a defense mechanism, really. Uh, <laughs> that's how you survived all these years. That's uh, right. That's how I cope. All right. So Alan says he's hoping for the best with 30% of the vote. Joe says no way at 34% Four. of the vote. And Joe wins. Man, people were Woo. really honest. <laughs> Joe wins big time. Was it 70 some odd percent? No way was sixty percent of the vote. That's holy cow! Yeah. Uh, now, Alan, you were you were really close because hoping for the best was definitely the second choice, at uh, just under thirty three percent of the vote. Oh, nice! But so there was nobody that was like, "Hey, just give it to me." <laughs> yeah. No. <laughs> yeah, that's the real takeaway here. Is like less than seven percent of the audience is like trust their family yeah. to buy their tech gifts for them. Any devices, they're like, you know. No way. I want an apple. Oh, they get this like thing from an orchard. Yeah. Like, <laughs> hey, hey, mom, I want the, the latest uh, Series 3 Apple Watch with LTE. And then, you know, they're just going to get a bag of apples, a random watch, you know, a $10 Casio See, watch like or something, you know, calculator watch. There it is. That's what it's going to be. Oh, because that'll be the latest smartwatch. That's Those right. are actually, the, that's becoming like the latest hipster thing is the calculator watches are coming back. So... Yeah, that's what that's what you would get. That's amazing. Well, this one doesn't that's have awesome. LT and E, just those letters. This one had the whole calculate had the whole alphabet on it. It's oh, better. <laughs> well, see, I, I feel like you know, like the, the phones and stuff, like the stuff that I really want, like I either buy or don't buy myself. 
And so the stuff that I might want for Christmas would be like, you know, I don't know, a cell phone case that looks like a tank tread or something. Like, I'm not trusting that to anybody. I, you know, I need to see that. You know, I need to spend some serious research time. I can't just, you know, tell anybody to just pick me up a cool looking phone case. Oh, dude. <laughs> you know, what if I, what if I get I like the tank the tread? He's going to spend all the time on. Yeah. It was like a $20 a item. Like, you know, if a case for the phone. But. I gotta spend some research time on that. Wait, what does that look like? Yeah, it looks like a it looks like ball. a transformer. It's badass. Oh, it does. <laughs> yeah, man, my, my phone case has a kickstand now. <laughs> you know, I wouldn't even have known if I if I didn't go browse it for uh, myself. This is why Joe has to refer to our list when it comes to buying like the more expensive things <laughs> because yep. he spends all of his time researching like the little things. Could you imagine the hole he would crawl in? Uh, I don't <laughs> know what video card to get. <laughs> Uh, in my research, I think you mean like holding my phone up to the screen like, is this going to look good? I don't know. Oh, man. I don't know why you just said via card and this like thought popped in my head cause based off of the last conversation or the last episode. But there was actually an article now where it was we were talking about how like the cost of video cards we're not we're we shouldn't expect to see any kind of decline in those because of the Bitcoin, Bitcoin. rise in in mining or that, you know, now that it's. Like gotten up to like thirteen thousand something insane like that, Bitcoin? like because because it's created another surge. Mm-hmm. So now all of the video cards are being consumed with mining capabilities. So it's like thanks, some of us wanted a game. I don't Man. know, I don't know about you, but some of us wanted to be able to like relax, play a little game every now and then. Man, continuing that tangent, I shared with you guys the other day. There was a dude who mined. 7,500 Bitcoins back in the infancy mm-hmm. and he threw his hard drive right away and it's in a, it's in a landfill somewhere. His Bitcoin fortune is worth over $80 million. And the dude, like, how do you sleep at night? How? how? Oh man. I, I like, I'm a little vomity right now. Just even thinking about being in that position. Oh, oh, it's awful. Anyways. I mean, yeah, I don't really have a good answer. For that, yeah, no, dude, that's that's horrible. Yeah, yeah, that's awful. All right, so what, what do we got for today's survey? Well, before I do today's survey, actually, I uh, we we sent out um, one of the things we did on the mailing list was a, a course for um, React in Motion, and we asked people to send in their favorite JavaScript front end framework. And so, uh, I think you guys have both seen the graph. So, you're going to have to pretend they didn't. And give me a guesstimate on your uh, what you think people said their favorite JavaScript front-end framework was and a percentage. Well, I can't see the graph that you're looking at. I, but I vaguely remember. I do it, so vaguely I found remember. it. Yeah. I'm but I'm not going to paste it in until after you guess. I'm going to omit myself because I actually remember <laughs> roughly what these numbers were. Do you remember the percentage? Uh, I don't remember the Pretty percentages. Close. Angular okay. JS. I do remember Angular was the top. Angular was the top, and it was like thirty four percent or something like that. Like it was, it was a pretty decent chunk. It was like Angular and then React, React. and nobody was going to be surprised. Well, that was also Joe combined all of the Angular responses. He right. didn't like break it up into versions. Fair enough. Yeah. Yep. Um, but it was it was Angular first, uh, and then React second, and then third place. I think it was Vue. Vue, I think. Yeah. Wow, you, you guys have better memory than I do. <laughs> and then down from that, I'm trying to remember what was after Vue. It seems like it was like Knockout or something. One of the old random jQuery. ones. It was jQuery. Yeah, it was, yeah. JQuery. It was jQuery. Okay, yeah. 
Yeah, you want to take one more guess? After jQuery? Yep. Like what was number five? A vanilla. Uh, it was other. Other. Ah. <laughs> Shit. So other included things. Uh, we definitely got some funny answers. Well, other tied with Meteor, didn't stuff. it? Uh, no, Meteor was only 3%. Oh, yeah. dang. But what I thought was really interesting is just how low Ember was. Like it was down in the others. Like hard. Like Ember, you know, like if I, oh, if God. we had asked this a year ago, I feel like Ember would have been up there. I don't even remember hearing but, seeing any responses for Ember. It was tiny. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, the thing about Ember is, is it was always that niche thing. But I mean, it, it's it's like one of those things because we've been asked in the past, you know, hey, what framework would you go grab? And I, my answer has always been, what's well, hot in the market, mm-hmm. right? I mean, Ember's not. I mean, don't get me wrong. There's companies out there that use it, but I mean, if you're looking for something, that's not going to be what pops up on any LinkedIn or resume or anything like that. Yeah, so, I don't know. So um, we'll have that. The, we'll have the pie chart in the show notes, um, and I'll, I'll post on Facebook and Twitter and a, a couple other places too. That's just kind of interesting to see. And uh, Aurelia was another one that I used to hear a, a kind of a lot about uh, in the .NET space, and it just kind of it's lumped in the others, cool. along with Fart Scroll. <laughs> 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 nice. Fart. We got more fart scrolls than Aurelia's. I'm sad to say. Oh, so if you're working in Aurelia, um, then I know a great React course you could watch. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, Vue wasn't even around a year ago, right? Like it's no, it I mean, I'm no. sure it was, but it was was a popular year ago. Uh, not as popular. I think it's really been gaining steam of late. Am I remembering it wrong? Didn't like Vue predated Angular and React, right? Uh, Didn't some of the concepts. I don't know about that. I know that it just recently hit version 2.0. So I, I don't know. Because it, it seems very much a mixture of React and Angular in terms of how its syntax is. But I don't know. Anyways. Okay. All right. Today's so survey. on to today's survey. <laughs> our third survey that we're discussing today. <laughs> we want to know how many developers are at your company. And this is a, a really interesting question for us. Um, so I know we definitely have our own biases based on the places that we've worked. And I always hear such astronomical numbers. Like say they say like Microsoft has 50,000 programmers on their staff and Amazon has 20,000. So you almost think like our, you know, like the, if we took a poll of listeners, like you would think that so many of them would work for those large companies. But I kind of don't think that's the case. So um, what uh, what we want to do here is uh, we'll have a couple options. So if you're a solo developer, let us know just me. Uh, about five, you know, so give or take a couple uh, like Captain Planet. Um, that's one of the options. Uh, closer to the 20 mark. Uh, this is the point where you really want headphones and you have to, you know, get into the politics of uh, where and when, who you're going to launch with. <laughs> When you're closer to the 100 mark now, things that definitely gets changed. There's going to be people that you don't know there. And so let's know about that. And then um, I'm just going to call anything over 10,000 like, you know, you're in the you're in those those big players. You're at the Facebooks or, you know, Semantics or Amazons or whatever. 10,000, so, not 1,000? Um, I think 1,000 developers is pretty major, right? Yeah, we, we want to break that out to 1,000 and 1,000? Uh, let's, yeah, let's just, just say let's just cap it at one thousand plus. Yeah, one thousand plus. Because okay. I mean, that's when you start getting into like big, big software organizations. Because you're talking about like total developers in the company, not developers yeah. on the same total team. Company. Right, right. Yeah, I think. And, which is really funny. Like I worked at Semantic, and they had well, well over you know eighteen thousand employees, but it didn't feel that way because the group I worked with was like two hundred. I mean, looked uh, worked at the Amazons up too, and Amazon's got twenty one thousand uh, developers, I think. 
So it just certainly didn't feel that way to me, right? Right. Yeah, I would I would say that I would I would guess that any company that has a thousand or more developers, that's an enterprise company. That's big time, yeah. Whether you know, depending on what the enterprise might be, but it's an enterprise company. So I got I got curious, so I I went to my favorite uh resource, Wikipedia. Uh <laughs> the most accurate. Yeah. WikiLeaks or Wikipedia? <laughs> well, both. Yes. Um yeah, no. So uh, I, I remembered it incorrectly. Um, Vue started after Angular. Okay. The, uh, one of the guys who was working for Google using Angular uh, created Evan U. That makes sense because it's definitely influenced by Angular syntax. But also React. React, yeah. Both. I mean, it's Air- a mixture of both. Yeah, definitely. We so. should talk about front-end JavaScript sometime soon. We should, man. We have all kinds of things. Like I, I would love to do a machine learning uh, series. I'd like to do some front end stuff. I, I, man, we have so many topics. Maybe after we get out of this book, we'll we'll revisit some of these things that we'll do some deep dives on. Yeah, when you're uh, leaving that comment, uh, trying to win that book, why don't you let us know what you like to hear? Yeah, I like that. Cool. Yeah, it's a good idea. Word. All right, so uh, we're wrapping up this episode. Well, obviously, we're going to include a link. For the resources we like section, uh, a link to the clean architecture book by Uncle Bob. And with that, we head into Alan's favorite portion of the show. It's the tip of the week. Yeah, baby. All right. So I'm going to start with my tip of the week. And um, so Alan mentioned that, you know, he'd like to get interested in machine learning and start uh, dipping his toe into that. You can too. So last episode, I believe it was last episode, my tip, or maybe it was an episode back, was the using the uh, studio.azure ML or uh, what was that? I forgot the URL now. Um, studio, yeah, studio.azure ML to start building out your, well, let me finish the URL, studio.azure ML.net to uh, experiment with machine learning and use some of the, um, you know, algorithms that have already been created, a little nice drag and drop interface, whatever, uh, that's all within Azure and you could do that for free. Well, this is similar to that. There's the uh, notebooks.azure.com where you can spin up a Jupyter notebook to play with Python or R or F sharp. And you can use that uh, environment to go ahead and start playing around with some various machine learning uh, exercises of your own. And they've got examples right there on the, the main page where you can uh, discover sentiments in tweets or um, they give you an introduction to the cognitive toolkit. Um, and uh, yeah, so it's a really great tool. You can go out there and play with it. You can use, um, you know, uh, multiple versions of Python. Like I said, you could use R and F sharp as well. So yeah, just really cool environment for free. Um, yeah, I don't know what else I can say about that, but it's awesome. That's killer. Oh, and those libraries, there's like a whole bunch of libraries already there uh, with our notebooks already available, and you can clone those much like you might clone a Git repo and, uh, you know, start editing that. So if for a notebook, for anyone who hasn't used it, um, 
is this kind of concept where you could combine markup style documentation along with code and you could break up the code uh, and then insert like markup and then have code again and each individual piece of code you could run independently. So what I mean by that is like, let's say I have a, a block of code where I would might put in all my import statements um, to reference other um, packages that I want. And so I could go ahead and execute that so that inside of my running kernel, I have those. And then I could put in a block of like, okay, hey, here's the requirements of what I'm trying to do. And then I could write, uh, my third block would be another piece of code block where, you know, maybe I write some entry level kind of, you know, uh, you know, just trying to ramp up the overall application or whatever. Uh, and I could run that second block independently of the other block. I don't have to rerun the first block of code. I only need to rerun, I only need to run that second block and I could run that second block as many times as I go. And I could keep writing blocks of code like that inside of this notebook and I only need to run, I only have to run that one block as I'm going over. The other blocks, their state is going to be maintained as I, as I carry on. That's really cool stuff. I mean, they've got all like, it, it's almost like the uh, uh, Code Academy type courses where it, it's, it like walks you through while you're playing with the code. Like it, it's really cool stuff. Yeah. It's so amazing. It, it, the amount of stuff that you can get for free is crazy. And I, and I was, here's one downside that I want to point out that is like super unfortunate the way they Microsoft positioned this uh, in terms of like the placement. But on that main page, there's one called the fundamentals of data science with Python, which Okay, that sounds super amazing, right? But like the first handful of notebooks are all the basics of Python, which I really wish they had moved that out into just the basic Pythons because it goes over like if you're not, so if you wanted to learn Python, for example, then those those you know first handful of notebooks go over everything that you might want to know about working with Python. You, you know, what, what the semantics of that language are like. Right. Um, and so I say that because, um, uh, my son who's interested in Python, I, I wanted to, you know, him to point it, him to use it. And, um, you know, he was going through the introduction to Python notebooks and he's like, wait a minute, I'm not seeing these things that you were talking about, about like basic data structures and, you know, uh, things like, for loops and while loops and things like that. And I'm, and I'm looking through that introduction to Python notebook and I'm like, yeah, I don't see it either. I don't remember what I was looking at before. And I had to go back and find it. And they're like, Oh yeah, there it is. Interesting. So maybe misorganized a little bit, but a lot of cool free stuff. That particular one is, so I only, and I only call that out, not as a, not as a, a jab at Microsoft, but more like for those who don't already play with Python that might have an interest in Python that's a very easy set of notebooks that you could go through, but go looking for it in the data science, the introduction to data science area. Cool. Excellent. All right. Mine is a Visual Studio 2017 tip that I stumbled upon and is just awesome to me. So anybody that's ever used uh, Sublime or I think even Visual Studio Code has this, there's this whole map Mm. of your code on the scroll bar, mm -hmm. right? And so 
as you get familiar with your code, you sort of can see the pattern, right? Like you could, you, you sort of see the indents and the, and the fatter sections of code. And, and so it's like a really quick visual way to be able to, to go in and, and scroll to a section of your code that you're aware of. And there is a way to enable that feature in visual studio 2017, probably even 2015, I think. Um, so in a nutshell, you go to tools, options, text editor, and um, you go to all options and you, or you can search in the, in the little search thing and type in scroll bar. And then you'll see there is a way. Um, I think it says select show annotations over vertical scroll bar, but basically right now you get those little dots down your scroll bar Well, you can enable this, this map view of it and you get those as well as highlights and you go to sections. So, I mean, I love it. I turned it on on mine. I use it all the time. So uh, if you didn't know it was there, which likely you didn't, because I mean, unless you just somebody who goes in and digs around in options in Visual Studio, you probably didn't. You probably didn't know. So now I would just encourage you to uh, play with the white space on your your code so that you can make pretty art in that map. You can, man. You, you'll easily be able <laughs> to see methods, all kinds of stuff. I, I mean, it, it's a cool feature. I mean, there's a reason why things like Sublime and Visual Studio and all these other, or Visual Studio Code. Do, do either of you guys remember that from like the 90s, I think it was? Do you do you recall what I'm talking about, Joe? There was like a, I'm trying to remember who it was. I want to say it was like a printer company, like <laughs> Epson or somebody, where um, it, it was... I don't know, like a like an Easter egg. If you happened to go look at their HTML, right? Because you remember, like that was the '90s, right? Like you know, everyone you wrote your HTML or your JavaScript, you're like, oh man, it's amazing how they do that. And then you go and like you'd look at it, and and you, it was easily to you know easily human readable, right? And it wasn't minified or anything like it is today. Yep. And they had organized their code to where if you flipped, if you if you were to print the whole thing out, the whole page out, and then flipped it out. Uh, you know, um, portrait mode, right? Then it was uh, a mountain. It was a mountain scene, and I forget which one it was, but it was like uh, some like Mount Fuji or something like that. It was a famous. <laughs> That's oh, awesome. you know what? Maybe that was it. It was like a Fuji.com because isn't that like a film company? Mm -hmm. That's what it was, and it, I think it was like the mountain, the Fuji mountain chain. I think if <laughs> I remember right, <laughs> I've cool. never heard of this. I, I'm gonna see yeah, if I, I can find the, it. I missed the old days. All right, so that's it for me. Um, what you got? What you got, Joe? All right. Well, I remember that I'd done Glyphy as a tip before, so I had to scramble. <laughs> and uh, once again, I haven't actually uh, used my tip, <laughs> so I still thought it was pretty cool, though. Um, did you know that there are, uh, in, in particular, actually, there's one really popular open source CPAP analyzer that will take the data from your CPAP. Um, you can, you know, if you got a little SD card, if you have a uh, uh, if you're not familiar with CPAP, um, then, you know, good for you. But uh, <laughs> for the people that do have uh, problems with sleep apnea, like uh, some of our larger neck uh, listeners, <laughs> like myself, um, it, uh, it the data is oftentimes like encrypted or um, just un unaccessible or isn't really easy to read. But there's an open source uh, software package called Sleepyhead. That will take that data, will decrypt it, load it in, and give you all sorts of really interesting info and uh, biometrics about your own sleeping habits. Habits, and uh, it looks really cool. The graphs are all really cool. I've heard a lot of good stuff about it. I'm meaning to try it, so um, I want to 
to take a look at it. Maybe you can do something with uh, with Outlaws tip there and do some machine learning and, I don't know, disrupt the whole industry. That's really cool. Yeah. I mean, why not? I mean, you got to like the, the any, any open source project called Sleepyhead. It's <laughs> <laughs> uh, already yeah. a winner. That's awesome. It's pretty cool. Uh, Excellent. So, so I can't find that that any art or uh, any images of that Fuji thing that I was thinking of. And when I found pictures of food, Mount Fuji, I'm like, oh, that's a little boring. Maybe that wasn't it. Because it was definitely wasn't just like one peak. Um, so I say that because if any listeners recall what I'm referring to. I actually and, found it. Oh, you did? Yeah. Oh, share the link. Fuji. Let's put the link in the in the show notes. But yeah. Yeah, because I definitely want to see it again. Fuji Nunbinos? Never. I, you're going to have to spell that one. F-U-J-I-N-O-N-B-I-N-O-S dot com slash BP dot PHP. And apparently, like this. Wait, uh, you can't just put that in the show notes? I could. <laughs> I could. <laughs> I could. All right. Anyways, yes, I, I will send it. So there was somebody. Yeah, I found a link to somebody. I like. I I need to verify this. This might be. <laughs> this might be an attack. I don't know. <laughs> uh, uh, what are all these pop ups, Alan? Right. Sorry about that. Um, oh my gosh. Yeah. At any rate. Okay. All right. So with that, uh, we discussed the components Oops. and component cohesion of the clean architecture. And I hope you enjoyed it as we continue to make our way through this uh, this book. Subscribe to us and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, and more using your favorite podcast app. Be sure to leave us a review by visiting www.codingblocks.net slash review. And while you're up there, go ahead and check out all our show notes, our examples, discussions, and more. And uh, if you guys know anything about Crypto Locker, let me know. I'm getting this weird pop-up. <laughs> Man, get off here. <laughs> 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 your feedback questions, rants to the Slack channel, codingbox.com. You can actually send yourself an invite by going to the website, codingbox.net, and uh, going to slash Slack. And we've got some links there, too. And oh. come in, hang out. And swag, swag, if you guys want stickers. Send us a self-addressed stamped envelope. Uh, just go to codingblocks.net slash swag. And yeah, I think that was it. Yep. And we've got all sorts of stuff on the website. If you've never been to the website, I definitely recommend checking out because if you like the show, the show notes, uh, there's just a ton of them. There's some uh, additional articles and lots of resources. There's videos up there. I mean, there's all sorts of stuff. Um, so you should check it out. Yep, totally. This is a short episode. Thanks, guys. <laughs>